So we, we are in the midst of the Christmas Chronicles. If you want, Jason mentioned, there are sheets of paper on the end of each aisle. If you want one, you can have one. Uh, there are places where you can write if you like information about Harvest Hill or you have prayer concerns or like to know more about what it is to be a member or a follower, more importantly, a follower, a Christian. Um, that can be on there. But we also have some sermon notes on there if you want to take them. I'm not going to take them from you. I already have them, uh, so I'm not going to grade them. They're not for me. They're for you. Uh, if you'd like to do that, I know some of you all do in your own little journals and things like that, so um, feel free to continue to do so. Um, but we are in the Chronicles of Christmas. Last week we started with the forever Christmas. And oh, Christmas isn't just a time of year. It's not just a season or a matter of days. But Christmas is meant to be something that impacts us forever, throughout our entire lifetime. It is a constant reminder of God's love for us. And this morning we're going to be spending our time looking at the foretelling of Christmas. And I don't know about you, but I love trailers. Uh, I, and I mean like movie trailers, previews. Uh, trailers to TV shows I get excited about. A um, couple, I guess, earlier in the year, uh, one of my favorite movie franchises launched a trailer for the movie that comes out here in a couple weeks known as Star Wars. And I got so excited about watching that trailer, and I watched it several times. I'm not one of those, and if you are one of these, that's, that's fine. That's to each his own. But I'm not one of those who will go through a trailer and been, begin dissecting it and looking for things that maybe I missed. But um, I know some people do that, and they enjoy doing that. And, and sometimes I'll read your blog about what you found because you have more time than I do. But I do watch those, and every, every preview that's come out for Star Wars in this last year, I've, I've watched them, and I've shown, or shared them with uh, Ethan. I tried to share them with Jamie, but she's like, eh. So um, I don't share in that joy. But we all like... Uh, previews and trailers of things coming up because they let us know what to be expected. And so we're familiar with movie trailers, we're familiar with TV show trailers, uh, maybe video game trailers. They even make trailers for books now, which uh, I find that kind of odd, but um, anyway, uh, that's fine. Uh, I can remember my, my favorite trailer, and here it is. <clears throat> it was, I believe, when, uh, it's a Star Wars one, obviously, uh, but it was when I think episode three was getting ready to come out, uh, or they were planning for it to come out that next year. And I, was, I don't remember what movie I was watching at the time, but we were in the theater, and the screen goes black, and then the Lucasfilm shows up, because that's who makes those movies, and then the screen goes black again, and this is all that happened. And I was, oh, goosebumps. I mean, <laughs> I was ready. I was excited. I mean, it was mentally preparing me to what to expect in that in that movie that was coming out. And I'm not sure if God is a fan of movies, but I do know he's a fan of stories um, because Jesus came and he illustrated through stories and he thought, taught through stories. And God has been orchestrating the greatest story that has ever been told since the beginning of time. Uh, and throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God has been foretelling of this story. He has been dropping previews and trailers and teasers of what is to come, and we call them prophecies in Scripture. The word prophecy uh, is defined by the Holman Bible Dictionary as a reception and declaration of a word from the Lord through a direct prompting of the Holy Spirit and human instrument. Now, some people define prophecies as predictions. But I don't really care for that definition, because when I think of predictions, I think of people who try to predict who's going to win a sporting event or who's going to win a political poll or a political race. Um, and that's not what a prophecy is. 
A prophecy doesn't rely upon polls. It doesn't rely upon statistics. A prophecy is based upon the infinite and supreme knowledge of the Alpha and Omega to foretell what is going to happen. I like this definition. A prophecy is a miracle of knowledge, a declaration or description or representation of something future beyond the power of human understanding, knowledge, perceptiveness, or intelligence to foresee, discern, and conjecture. In 2 Peter in the New Testament, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, Peter captures this definition of prophecy. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, and when he says no prophecy, he's not just speaking of the Old Testament, he's speaking about everything that we call the Bible, that nothing in Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now throughout the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, there are over 60, over 60 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Concerning His birth, His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His ultimate glorification when He returns. Over 60. And throughout the Bible, there are over 20 prophecies just dealing with this time of year that we call Christmas. And if you look in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul was led to capture us through the power of the Spirit. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. The fullness of time there that Paul was meant to write about in Galatians 4, verse 4, is what we call Christmas. It is a time that has been designated by the Father for His Son to enter into time in human history fixed and appointed by God. It is a time through the prophecies of the Savior that would be born of a, vir of a virgin, be born in a town called Bethlehem, be born from a live line of Seth, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. It is a time of uh, persecution, like in the times of Moses and the times of the judges, when there is a government that was over the people of God known as the Romans, which leads to what Luke was able to write in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, each to his own town. The reason Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem is because they were under the rule of the Roman government, so they had to follow this decree. But that led to the fullness of time of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, which is of the city of David in the tribe of Judah. It was a fullness of time when Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who was barren, became pregnant, and that child prepared the way for the Messiah. There are over 20 prophecies that deal with Jesus Christ being born. Now, I just want to focus on four real quick this morning because I believe they're important. And one that we sing about, one we know about, the first one is of the virgin birth. And thousands of years before Christ was born, God proclaimed the virgin birth. If you want to make your way to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, before Christ was born, God declared to a fallen Adam and Eve, what he had planned to do to restore and reconcile a sinful human race that had been plagued by sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord is speaking to the serpent who had tricked Adam and Eve in eating of the fruit that he commanded them not to. And the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This proclamation of judgment is what is known as the very first prophecy concerning the Christ. 
It's, we come to understand that because when the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. At this point in Scripture, Adam and Eve are seen as one under the sanctity of marriage before God. But in this declaration, in this judgment and prophecy, God separates the man and woman, saying that your offspring and her offspring. Meaning God is not speaking directly to Eve, which we know that if we read. He's speaking to the serpent. He's speaking of the offspring of a woman that, has, that did not come from a man. And so he's pronouncing Christ is coming. He's saying that I know that sin was going to come into the world, but I already have the plan, and that is going to be through Christ, which will come through a virgin birth. Matthew captures this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Now we read that at face value, and it doesn't seem like it's saying much, but when we take the Greek, which is what Matthew was written in, that's the original language of Matthew, in the New Testament, the of whom. So Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, that of whom is written in the feminine Greek, which what Matthew is led to say by the Spirit is that it is emphasizing Jesus was born without Joseph's participation. He goes on to make sure we understand this when he quotes from the book of Isaiah in verse 23 of chapter 1. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, in case we're not catching it, Matthew goes on to emphasize in verse 25 that Mary remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. Why is it so important that we understand Jesus came from a virgin birth? Well, first off, because that's what God said, how God said it was going to happen. And so if God says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen that way, then we can't trust God. But God moved throughout history to set this up for the fullness of time. Secondly, it means Jesus was not born with a sinful nature. It means Jesus then therefore can be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He can be the perfect, blameless, holy sacrifice which he was on the cross. And finally, it speaks of Jesus' deity or his equality with God. For Jesus to be born of a virgin means that he was, he was conceived by the power of God, which Luke emphasizes in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, when he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power most high will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. But God didn't just stop there in saying how His Son would be born of a virgin and how it would come about. He also said throughout the history of Israel where you could find this child when He was born. In the book of Micah, in chapter 5, verse 2, God reveals this is where the Son of God shall be born. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient of days. And those phrases, from old, from ancient of days, mean it is before time existed. It is from the beginning, as Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. That's where he's pointing to. The phrase, too little, when speaking of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is speaking of when Bethlehem wasn't even mentioned in the allotment of land in Joshua chapter 15, verse 60. But God says, this is how he's going to be born. This is where he's going to be born. He's giving these little previews, these little teasers, so people can know what to expect when Jesus shows up on the scene. But he also says, this is the family to which he's going to be born from, 
which is known as the Davidic covenant, and how Jesus is a king. It begins in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13, when the prophet Nathan is speaking to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. It's basically a nice way of saying, okay, when you die, David, I'm going to rise, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. At that point in time, Nathan is telling David about King Solomon. But Nathan goes on. He gives a little teaser trailer. He says, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. So he's no longer speaking about the next king that comes after David. He's speaking about something else because there is no earthly king, no physical kingdom that has lasted forever. In verse 16, Nathan goes on and says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Well, King Solomon, after he died, the kingdom of Israel split in half into the northern and southern kingdoms. And so this can't be about Solomon. This has to be not about a physical kingdom or a physical king, but about a spiritual and eternal kingdom pointing to Jesus Christ. The other prophecy, if you go back to the book of Genesis, comes from what is known as the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abram out from his country, his kindred, and his father's house. In the midst of calling him out in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the key emphasis is that all the families of the earth. Meaning God is calling Abraham, promising the blessing upon him, but he's saying it's not just going to be from your line. It's not just going to be the people of Israel. It's going to be all the peoples. To which Paul was given the wisdom in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, to point to this passage, saying that now Gentiles can enter into the family of God in the covenant given to Abraham that we are now invited in. But what does this mean for What do these four prophecies tell us about Christmas and what sort of impact should it have? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that God had a detailed plan for our salvation. The Bible reveals that sin and wickedness and the causes of sin breaks the heart of God. It breaks God's heart. And yet, though God's heart was broken, God placed a plan of salvation in place before we even knew we needed it. And throughout history, God kept reminding His people, this is what I'm going to do to ultimately save you from yourself. And so God, throughout Scripture, told His people, this is how the Messiah will be born. This is where He will born, be born. This is when He will be born. These are the individuals who prepare the way for Him. This is what He will do. He even told them this is what He will talk about. He told His people this is how He will talk. And this is how people respond to what He talks about. This is how He will die. This is how those closest to Him will respond to His death. This is what, they, what He will have to go through. And this is what He's going to look like as He goes through His death death and this is what is going to happen after he dies why does that matter to us because as representatives of the gospel and as the word of god we can rest assured this is not a haphazard message that has been put together but god has been orchestrating this since the beginning of time for our salvation every detail is in here so we can know how to live a life that is holy and blameless before god and we can be part of the good news god has detailed it out He's, he's roadmapped it. And so these prophecies, like all the others, also let us know that God's details eliminates uncertainty. 
God ordained salvation thousands of years before you and I were even born. God ordained salvation for us before we even knew what sin was. And then God laid out the plan of salvation through His Word. And we can rest assured in our salvation and not have any questions concerning it. Not because I say it, not because you may have read it somewhere or heard it somewhere, but because God said it. And God is always faithful to His Word. He's always faithful to His promises. I mentioned there are over 60, over 60 prophecies foretelling of Jesus Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, and ultimate return. Over 60. And I hear that, I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's, that's cute. I mean, we'd be amazed if someone made 60 points in the game, but I don't understand what that means for over 60 prophecies. In his book, Josh McDowell's book, called Beyond Belief to Conviction, he interviews and speaks with a guy by the name, who's a professor by the name of Peter W. Stoner. What Stoner did is he did an analysis of probability of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. Not the over 60 that all Jesus fulfilled, not the over 20 which was just fulfilled in his birth, but of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. In Stoner's findings, he concluded, and it was published in the American Scientific Affiliation, that one person to fulfill eight prophecies hundreds to thousands of years before he was born is one in the 10th to 17th power. That is one with 17 zeros behind it, or 100 quadrillionth of a chance. To elaborate this, he gives an illustration. He says, if you were to take 100 quadrillion silver dollars and spread them over the state of Texas, they would not only cover that entire state of Texas, but they would put a pile two feet deep. Now that you have your pile, you take one of those silver dollars and you mark a red X on it, and you throw it into the pile, and then you mix it all up, and then you blindfold yourself. And after you blindfold yourself, you set out across the state of Texas. You start in El Paso on the western border of the state. You walk the length and breadth of that enormous state from Amarillo, Amarillo to the Panhandle to Laredo on the Rio Grande, all the way to Galveston on the Gulf of Mexico. And as you walk, you stoop down only one time, one time to pick up a silver dollar out of that two-foot-deep pile. And once you've got your silver dollar, you take your blindfold off. What are the chances that you have picked up the one marked silver dollar or out of the two-foot-deep 100 quadrillion silver dollars? He says that is the same chance that one person could have filled just eight messianic prophecies in one lifetime. And Jesus fulfilled them all. God has eliminated uncertainty on how you and I can be forgiven for our sins. He has eliminated uncertainty on how you and I can know how we can find eternal life. This is what Christmas is about. We may go to Christmas parties and exchange gifts and not knowing who's going to give us a gift or what is in that gift. God did not want that to be with the greatest gift in all eternity. He wanted us to know for sure. As we go through this time of Christmas, how does this help us in life? Because God has a detailed plan for our salvation. Because this detailed plan about salvation eliminate any uncertainty. We can find peace and assurance that God has a detailed plan for our life today. Psalm 139 emphasizes God's knowledge over all of our lives. Christmas solidifies God's plan for our life. 
As we go through this time of year, we're trying to get from point A to point B without losing our mind and going crazy. God sent His Son to be born in the flesh. And this is Christmas. To know that God's plan, and we can rest in God's plan, it's meaning what is known as the incarnation, which is a theological term. It means the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to Himself an additional nature of humanity through the virgin birth. It not only speaks of his family tree line being of David and Abraham, which Matthew and Luke point out, but also of his rightful claim as the heir to the throne of David and to the eternal kingdom of God. God has a plan for our life. And part of that plan, we need to know things about God. And this is what Christmas comes to remind us, that God loves us relentlessly. There's a song that came out, I think, this last year. It's one of Jackson's favorites, I think. It's by Corey Asbury. It's called uh, Reckless Love. Uh, Jackson's not even in here to poke fun. He hates that song. Right, Bree? Um, and and I, it's kind of catchy. I, I, I've liked it, but then I got to thinking about it. God's love can only be considered reckless when we think of it in terms of a holy God loving people who continue to doubt, wrestle, and struggle with His love for them. That's the only way you can consider God's love reckless. It's not reckless. God's love for you is relentless. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, in other words, not that we loved Him first, but that He loved us first and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means to put away it implies that Christ's death appeased the divine wrath of God that was called forth by our sin. This is what is known as the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That Christ took our sin upon Himself on the cross so that we in turn by our faith in His death and resurrection might be blameless, sinless, and holy before a holy God simply by our faith alone. This is the celebration of Christmas. I celebrate Christmas because Christmas leads to the cross. See, God's love for us is relentless, but God's love for us is also sacrificial. Christmas is God's eternal statement to all of us that we may have turned from God, but He will not turn away from us. Christmas is God's statement, you are so important to me that I will go to extraordinary lengths to have a personal relationship with you. As we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate despite our sin, God loves us sacrificially. And we live in a world that likes to belittle or question value, but Christmas is God's statement of love that we have value. We are valued by the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God who will judge every living being. We are valued by Him. And Christmas is not only a statement of God's value to us, but it's a statement that God gives us value. When I accept Jesus Christ, I become a child of God and an heir to the eternal kingdom. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But in verse 4 and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, made us alive together in Christ. Christmas is God saying He knows us completely. God knew what we needed before we knew what we needed. God knew that we needed a Savior before we knew we had sin. And Christmas is God saying He wants us relationally, which is a huge problem we have because we like to make this thing about God and Christianity, about steps and things we do. But God wants it to be about a relationship with Him. 
So we gather with family and friends and co-workers and peers whom we have relationships with. And it's to remind us that I get to have a relationship with the God of the heavens and the earth. All because of Christmas. And God has been setting this plan up since the beginning of time, knowing that you and I would be torn away from Him by our sin. And God loves us so much, He sent Jesus Christ to die for us that we might be restored back to Him. That's Christmas. That's the story God has been telling since the beginning of time. I love you, and I want you. You are of value to me, and I give you value. We need to stop listening to what the world says is valuable and what makes us valuable in this world because God has already given it to us. It's found in Christmas. You may be here this morning and you need to hear the whole message of Christmas. Why did Christ have to be born? In Isaiah chapter 53 it says, Surely He was born for our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, Christmas is a celebration that God came down to save sinners. And that can only be found through his only son, Jesus Christ. And the greatest gift you can accept this season is the gift God has given us all. And that's the gospel, the good news. I don't know where everybody is this morning. I imagine that here in a couple weeks you're going to celebrate Christmas in one way or another, but you can miss the whole point. See, God created you to be in a relationship with you. That's why you're made in His image and in His likeness. But our sins separate us from a God who loves us in ways we will never fully understand. The Bible says this about God. God is love. So everything God does in our, in our life is out of love, even if we don't understand it. And God loves you even in your sin. He just doesn't love the sin that's keeping you from Him. But what we all try to do is we all try to do good things. I'll just start going to church or start praying more, start reading the Bible more. I'm going to start listening to more Christian radio and more Christian podcasts. But that doesn't do it. You and I cannot do anything to remove our sin problem. That's why Jesus was born. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died on the death to take the wrath of God upon himself. They placed him in a tomb and he rose three days later. And the Bible says, when I believe that God loves me that much, and I believe that story is true, I don't have to understand every detail. I don't have to have every question answered. I just have to believe God loves me that much and that story is true. And I believe that in my heart. The Bible says, if I confess it with my mouth, I will be saved. Maybe that's you here this morning. You felt like you had to clean your life up or do something and get it right before you can become a Christian, before you can be given eternal life. And God says, no, that's not how I'm working here. I'm working on grace and what my son already did for you. We just have to accept that gift. We're going to come in a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us. As we sing, it's time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to come down. If you know that that is you, you do not have Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to celebrate with you. Because the Bible says when one person comes to Christ, the heavens erupt in celebration. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've just lost sight of what Christmas is. Satan is already toying with your heart, and it's becoming hard. You're just ready to get to December 26. You just need a reminder that God has been planning this out from eternity. 
We should cherish this moment about how much God loves us. Let's pray together. And then I'm going to ask you to stand and ask you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this time of year. We are reminded over and over again how much you love us. Father, you did the unthinkable, the unimaginable. You stepped out of the heavens. You became flesh and dwelt among us. You died so we could be forgiven and we could live. So I pray for those here this morning who do not know you as your Lord and Savior that their heart would be, have such conviction by your spirit that they cannot stay where they are, but they would walk down these aisles and let me know they want to be saved. They want to accept your gift of love to them. Pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I know this time of year is the time of year we can get so distracted about all the other things going on. We can forget this time is about you. It's about what you have done. Thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to your word. Thank you, Lord, that you came to save us and we can be sure of our salvation in you. Let this be a time when we are not just hearers of your word, but doers as we respond to what you've laid upon our hearts. Praise all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who reigns forever. Amen. I invite you to stand. I invite you to come.